0: This is the Global Gambit. Life inherently consists of gambits. Be it individuals or countries, the ability to outmaneuver, navigate, strategize, or faint to get ahead is crucial and inevitable against the complexities, unpredictabilities, risks, and competition associated with life around the world. In the Global Gambit podcast, we focus on the big picture of geopolitics, foreign policy, and current affairs, seeking to make sense of the news, go beyond what's presented to us, and question and critically analyze these matters. Each episode, your host, Pyotr Kurzin, who being English and Russian is a product of geopolitical events himself, brings you interviews and panels with top tier academics, journalists, and policymakers. Within each discussion, there is a live interactive audience who engages in a question and answer session with the guest in the podcast's second half. This episode is brought to you via the Ukraine sitrep room on Clubhouse, which has been continuously running since the 2022 Russian invasion of Ukraine, surpassing one million unique listeners on April 20th of 2022. Want to learn how to participate? Stay tuned to the end of the podcast. And do not forget to engage with us on social media, and if you appreciate the content, to support us at patreon.com forward slash The Gambit. Thank you very much for listening, and on to the show. This is The Global Gambit. Welcome back to another episode of The Global Gambit podcast. I'm your host, Piotr. Uh, and I'm very excited uh, to be joined here today by a great guest uh, on an, uh, for another episode of The Global Gambit. Uh, as usual, the first part will have a one-to-one with the uh, discussion, followed by a Q&A with a couple of live interactive audience questions. Uh, in this episode, we're going to be focusing on Iran, which uh, despite having little immediate, shall we say, over-connections to the Ukrainian war, it's still been, as with the entire globe, uh, affected. For one, Russia has surpassed it as being actually the most sanctioned uh, nation in the world. Uh, but equally, we've seen a response from the Iranian government, even in as recent as March 23rd, where they felt that the prospect for a nuclear, nuclear Iran deal was actually close, whilst the others in the uh, discussions, including the United States and even the Russians, weren't quite as confident. But how has the Iranian deal actually been impacted? Uh, what's the war done for, say, a Russian-Iranian relations? And what exactly um, does it mean for sort of Iran's interests in, say, the Middle East or even the Caucasus? All these questions and more we're going to uh, get into depth with with my guest uh, today, Barbara Slavin. Barbara is the director of the Future of Iran Initiative and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Uh, she's also a senior lecturer in international affairs at the George Washington University, uh, and she's been a regular commentator on US foreign policy and Iran on NPR, PBS and C-SPAN. Uh, she's also been the editor at the New York Times Week in Review. So, Barbara, before we kick off with some of the deeper content um, and questions, is there anything you'd like to, uh, to start off with, just sort of as an introduction, so to speak?
1: I wanted i wanted to correct you, and uh, I was not the editor of the New York Times-Weekend Review. I was an editor of the New York Times-Weekend uh, Review. Okay, my mistake. So. Um, but uh, my claim to fame on Iran is that I've been there nine times, and I wrote a book uh, about a decade ago called Bitter Friends, Bosom Enemies, which looked at the uh, rather uh, unfortunate interplay between the United States and Iran, between Iranian policy toward the United States and Iranian, and uh, U.S. policy toward Iran, uh, including a lot of missed opportunities uh, to improve relations. Um, where are we now? We're in limbo. The Iran nuclear deal, which was reached in a process that actually took 12 years, if you count when the Europeans began the process in uh, 2003, uh, it came together, and then, of course, as we know, Donald Trump became president and he withdrew in 2018 when Iran was still in full compliance with the agreement. And it has been slowly deteriorating since then, despite the fact that the Biden administration came in promising to try to rejoin the deal, to revive it. There have been negotiations in Vienna over the past year, and a 27-page document has been prepared that apparently deals with uh, almost all the issues that were outstanding. But Iran has raised an objection that is very difficult politically, I think, for the United States to deal with. And that is that Iran is demanding that one of many designations of the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC, which is a and a very important part of the Iranian military, a branch of the Iranian military, that a designation of this group as a foreign terrorist organization, which was added in 2019 by the Trump administration, that this be removed. And uh, this is politically very charged for the United States because there are credible threats uh, from Iran, from the Quds Force, which is a subset of the IRGC, the external branch of the IRGC, to take revenge on American officials who were responsible for ordering the assassination of a man named Qasem Soleimani, uh, who has was head of the Quds Force for many years, and a very, very senior and important figure in Iran, not just on the military and intelligence side, but really the security establishment writ large. So the US is refusing to lift this designation unless the Iranians essentially promise that they're not going to go after Mike Pompeo or John Bolton or any of the others uh who were involved in the decision to uh to assassinate Qasem Soleimani in 2020. Um so we're in this this weird state now. There've been no uh, no talks in Vienna for over gosh over 2 months now. No, over a month and a half no talks. There are messages which are being passed back and forth uh, between the United States and Iran by the European Union envoy, but there is uh, there's no sign of progress at this point. Um, nobody's willing to pull the plug, but the patient is still in a coma. I guess I would say. And I, I just don't know, as you know, more time goes on, does it become more difficult to reach an agreement? Possibly. But I mean, there are some suggestions out there. And I think there are ways to overcome this obstacle. The question is, is there a political will now on both sides to do it? Or have both the Iranians and Americans kind of lost their taste for this deal?
0: It's an interesting um, point about the Iranian deal, particularly. I um, was with crisis group uh, for a time. Um, and it was just about when, the the lead negotiator, Robert Malley, uh, stood down from the head of the um, organization to take on being the Iranian envoy. So for you particularly, what do you think of of Robert? Do you think he's a good, I've read that he's quite pragmatic, but um, do you think he's quite uh, well placed? uh, or, Or could there be someone who's better placed to deal with the uh, negotiations, particularly in the context of Ukraine and the threat from the Russians to, you know, start of try and scarper it, so to speak. Curious for your take on that.
1: Yeah, no, I think Rob has done an excellent job. I mean, the problem is, of course, that he's not, uh, I mean, in charge of these final decisions, it all has to go back to the White House. And so the decision is really Joe Biden's. And, you know, the problem, I think, is that Biden is not as invested in the Iran nuclear deal, certainly as uh, Obama was. Uh, you know, Obama had both his heart and his head in this deal. He really saw it as a game changer in the Middle East. For Biden, I think maybe he's got his head in it, but not his heart. <laughs> uh, he's much more um, dispassionate about it. And he sees the political downsides of returning to an agreement that, while it's popular, uh, certainly has majority support in the United States, uh, has a lot of very prominent detractors. Uh, The Republicans are almost uh, united against it, and there are even some Democrats who didn't support the agreement the first time around, and uh, for a variety of reasons, mainly uh, ties to Israel, many of them are not very enthusiastic about going back into it now. This, despite the fact that only this agreement, this agreement has has been the only thing that has ever significantly slowed down or rolled back Iran's nuclear program. So frankly, I'm mystified by the opposition to it.
0: One thing you did mention was Israel, and obviously given the relationship or their lack of, uh, they have with Iran how would you say the Iranians have reacted to Israel trying to uh, be a leading mediator in the conflict with Ukraine and uh, and the Russians?
1: I'm not sure Iran has any objections to Israel trying to, to mediate. It doesn't seem to be doing very much good anyway. No, I, you know, this is a longer quarrel between Iran and Israel. It goes back to the Islamic revolution of 1979 and the very uh, strong, uh, pro-palestinian sentiments of uh ayatollah khomeini the leader of the revolution and many of the, of uh his followers they were reacting to the fact that the shah of iran who who they deposed uh was uh, uh had a good relationship with israel so they 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 saw this as being not in the interest of a of a muslim country you know uh which was supposed to support uh pan-islamic causes and uh this hostility of course has you know included acts of violence on both sides um including israeli assassinations of uh iranian nuclear scientists the last one was just uh, before uh before biden was inaugurated uh cyber attacks uh, sabotage of nuclear facilities, and and so on. And uh, I think the Israelis want to be able to continue to have a free hand to carry out these kinds of activities against, against Iran. And they may be worried that if the JCPOA is renewed, that the US will put pressure on them not to continue these kinds of activities.
0: Yeah, I mean, the relationship of the United States to Israel versus the Russian and Iranian, I mean, I just find it quite interesting, this it shows you in some ways the position the Russians before they undertook the campaign into uh, into uh, Ukraine. they how they had positioned themselves in the Middle East, so to speak. sort of arguably they had won the the conflict over Syria uh, against the Western coalitions. But um, it's just I'm just interested in this dynamic between them having decent relations with Israel, but also having this strategical partnership and sort of sympathetic understanding for the Iranian cause, and vice versa, given the sort of, well, both being heavily sanctioned. So um, I'm just curious how you think the relationship with those two is going to develop. Do you think Iran would be able to, I know if offset is the right word, but um, certainly alleviate um, some of the uh, financial and economic Im- impact the sanctions are going and have had on the economy, or is the Iranian economy not really that place to do much
1: well, you know, I don't think the Iranian economy can really do that much for the Russians. Um, you know, the, the Iran is, has its own problems <laughs> trying to, to circumvent sanctions. Maybe they can work together on, you know, some stratagems to, uh, to, uh, avoid sanctions, to mutually avoid sanctions. Uh, perhaps, uh, you know, Iran can teach Russia some methods uh, that the Russians didn 't already know for dealing with being expelled from the Swift financial messaging system for having your central bank under sanctions, other banks under sanctions, but I think the Russians are probably uh, pretty capable of doing those things on their their own i 'm a little more concerned about actually a triangular relationship in terms of sanctions busting. Among Russia, China and Iran, because <laughs> Iran, you know, Iran has grown very, very dependent on China over the last decade or so of sanctions. And uh, China is now Iran's major trading partner. They're, they're actually there's a bit of a rivalry competition there with Russia because I believe Iran has increased its oil sales mm-hmm. to China, and I think China has cut back on some of its oil purchases from Russia. Uh so you know the the interests of Iran and, and and Russia are not exactly identical. Also Iran had a pretty good relationship with Ukraine, including a trading relationship with Ukraine, uh which has now obviously been completely disrupted by the invasion. So there's some mixed feelings there. The 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 Iran Russia relationship has been primarily in terms of Syria, which you mentioned, some arms cooperation and Russian help with Iran's nuclear program, its civilian nuclear program, you know, there was a thought that Iran would buy some more Russian weapons, that kind of thing. I don't know if Russia will have the weapons to spare now, given that it's throwing everything uh, into into Ukraine. So for now, you know, the propaganda points uh, in Iran from the government are that it's the fault of NATO for expanding the fault of the United States uh, for putting pressure on Russia. That's why all of this happened. At the same time, they're calling for an end to the war. And Iranian popular opinion is strongly against Russia and against uh, the invasion, because Iran historically has suffered from Russian aggression in the past.
2: So that's
0: um, you're, you're, you're uh, alluding to two other questions that I have for you, because um, it's, it's in this room um, that we've been running on Clubhouse. We record these um, as part of a podcast. And one of the ways that you can see a uh, sentiment is you can share the room as a function to share it or tweet it out and so on. And one of the largest groups of people that have been doing that are people from of Iranian origins or maybe in Iran. if They have access to Clubhouse via a VPN, so to speak. Uh, so it's very interesting to see the um solidarity that has been shown by the Iranian people, you know, and that sort of sympathy for facing a, an oppressive force, so to speak. So I'm curious if you, um, you, you said you've been to Iran nine times. Could you fill us in a little bit about, I don't know if you've read about that, if you've heard from anyone about what Iranian sentiment, if you could take us through that a little bit more, because I think it's quite an interest, an interesting, but under talked about sort of area.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I'm only going by, by what I'm seeing, uh, in social media to some extent, uh, and also news reports of, you know, some demonstrations which have been held, uh, in Iran in solidarity with Ukraine, uh, protests in front of the, um, the Russian, uh, you know, embassy, that kind of thing, which of course are very rapidly squelched, uh, by the government. Um, but, you know, the Persian Empire had, was, was a, a good bit larger than the modern state of Iran. And the reason for that is that in the, uh, 18th and 19th centuries, Russia, uh, Imperial Russia peeled off big chunks of the Persian Empire. The, uh, countries of Georgia and Armenia, for example, were part of the Persian Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, Iranians remember <laughs> they have a long memory and there you know there's no love lost for uh for the Russians, uh especially now that they see that Russia is trying to expand its territory again at the expense of a sovereign state. Uh so I think it's perfectly natural. But of course the government of Iran has its own uh its own interests, which often diverge from that of the Iranian people. And uh, and they certainly do in this instance.
0: I certainly appreciate that. I am um, being half Russian myself. I was learning a little bit more about my own heritage earlier this morning. We found even a little bit more detail about some um, aspects of it. So I am no, I appreciate that point very much. Just on the Caucasus, um, it's mainly been the sort of Russian-Turkish battling ground, so to speak. And after the Nagorno-Karabakh skirmishes of 2020, Russia became firmly sort of the peace broker and has, what, a couple thousand, few thousand peace keepers in quotation marks position there. And Iran has never, I, I remember them undertaking some military tests. Was it about a year, a year and a half ago? But I was wondering, in light of what's happened in Ukraine, has Iran begun to look at that region with a little bit more opportunism?
1: Well, Iran actually was always very, very close to Armenia. Not to uh, to Azerbaijan, which is interesting, since Azerbaijan is uh, Shia Muslim, <clears throat> and I believe Shia Muslim. Yeah, yes. But historically, uh, Iran has been very close to Armenia. Maybe partly because there's a large Armenian diaspora in Iran. Still, uh, it's it's the largest Christian minority in in the country, um, and Iran was very upset by that uh, that war. Uh, and the fact that the Azeris uh, took uh, took back uh, territory. Iran was not really able to do anything about it, partly because of its other relations with the Russians, partly be- because of the, um, the efficiency of the Azeris and the way the Turks helped them. Um, of course, the Israelis also are uh, very involved in Azerbaijan, which is another wrinkle in all of this. Uh, But the Iranians have accepted the situation. I mean, there's nothing they can really do about it. And they have, you know, bigger fish to fry, so to speak, in terms of Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Lebanon. Uh, And so the Caucasus, I think, is a little less important to them strategically.
0: It's not perhaps the primary matter on their radar. But uh, I mean, Azerbaijan, it's what, uh, two nations, one state, I think was the term used to describe its relationship with Turkey. And then Armenia and Russia incredibly close. And then, as you're saying about um, Iran. And well,
1: Iran also has a large Azeri population as well no, that's, uh, uh, yeah. and has a province, uh, an Azeri province, which uh, the Russians uh, seized um, after World War II and held on to for a while, uh, but were finally persuaded to leave uh, in part with, with help of the United States, interestingly enough, in the 1940s. So uh Iran is very sensitive to the Azeri minority in the country. It's quite large. The supreme leader of Iran is athlete, is actually half ethnic Azeri. Really? Uh yeah. So um you know it's 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 certainly important to Iran. Uh a lot of Iranians have gone to particularly to Armenia for uh vacations, for business to get COVID shots, to get the Pfizer shot, which was not available not uh, in happened. Iran. And, uh, you know, it's where you go if you want an American visa. You go to Armenia or you go to Dubai, generally, uh, sometimes Turkey, uh, to uh, a place where there is an American embassy or consulate. Um, so it's a close relationship. But as I said, I think Iran has accepted the the new order of things and, uh, you know, doesn't want to see it blow up again.
0: Sure. I appreciate that. so um, I'm going to wind down with this last question before we switch over to a couple from the audience. You mentioned about the axis of evil, so to speak, or the triangular relationship of China, Russia uh, and Iran. And we had um, uh, a fellow from the Council on Foreign Relations join us on Sunday uh, talking about the financial side of China. Um, in international political economy, particularly. Um, and she was talking about this growing desire to try and create, you know, an alternative financial system, and the prospect of using cryptocurrency or the ability to just sort of rebalance or counterbalance against the, you know, US hegemonic led order, so to speak. So I was wondering if you could go into a little bit more detail about what role Iran could have in that. Um, if Russia becomes or experiences vassalization, so to speak, where what would that mean for the Russian-Iranian relationship? China and Iran s- established this partnership, what in the past four or five months. So I'd love to hear your your take on that, and if you could uh, unpack some of the details about that triangular relationship, particularly in the economic area.
1: Yeah, well, I think it's it's still a little bit difficult to foresee. I mean the. The United States basically still controls the international financial system writ large. We we run the pipes that everything runs through by and large, and even crypto, you know, can be traced uh as, as we've seen recently. Um I I think it's more about the fact that that sanctions are not as effective as we would like to hope. Uh they do pack a wallop. But over time, you know, I always say sanctions are like antibiotics. They lose their efficacy if they're overused. They have to be truly multilateral uh, and have a clear and achievable goal to work. So in the case of Iran, sanctions had that under Obama, but they didn't have that under Trump. That was a unilateral action. And as a result A number of countries have uh, basically disregarded the sanctions, particularly China, which is now buying, you know, maybe a million barrels of oil a day from Iran. Mm -hmm. And the United States could try to go after that, but it's very difficult. The Chinese can create front companies very quickly. And also, frankly, we need the oil now on the market because the price is very high because of the Ukraine war. Um, and the efforts of many countries now, particularly in Europe, to, to stop buying Russian fossil fuels. I think the question is really not so much about the financial system per se, but about sanctions. How effective will they really be against Russia, given that they're losing their efficacy when it comes to uh, Iran Will Russia be able to sell oil at a discount to a number of countries or will it be really impacted because most of its energy sales uh, or a lot of them certainly were going to Europe? You know, that's that's the space that I think we have to watch. Uh, not so much how payments go or, you know, whether you pay in rubles or U.N. Uh, we also have to see how cooperative China is going to be in terms of helping Russia bus sanctions china has been very cooperative with iran will it do the same for russia i'm not so sure so i'm not sure that we have an axis of evil here uh necessarily um that's forming i I think i think the jury is out on that uh still you mentioned the the china-iran relationship it's important but china buys a lot of oil from saudi arabia too and it has been very careful to balance its relationships with all of the countries, oil-rich countries that are on the Persian Gulf, and not to be seen as favoring one uh, over another, so it's a lifeline for Iran, but it's not it's not Iran's salvation necessarily. Iran really needs to sell more oil, which is another reason why it should rejoin, uh, or come back into compliance with the JCPOA. Okay, so
0: now that concludes the one-on-one discussion what we're going to do now is open it up to some of the audience questions first off i'd like to go to aaron verger who is a research scientist and uh chair of the nexus working group on energy innovation and environment for a question aaron the floor is yours
3: uh thanks you, peter miss uh, uh slavin thank you very much for joining us great insights here wanted to ask so uh, uh, earlier you mentioned that, uh, 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 President Biden, uh, wasn't, uh, didn't put as much value on seeing through the Iran deal. And I think that, and I obviously agree with that sentiment. One thing I'd like to ask about how that might, might change. So last week, The Economist had an article that was titled, uh, Enemies with Benefits, Can Nicolas Maduro Help the West Wean Itself Off Russian Oil? Uh, I was curious if you had, uh, if you could uh, help think about with uh, um, the West trying to lean off of Russian oil, uh, much like the Economist article was suggesting that uh, the West would make overtures to uh, uh, Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela to try and help out with this. I'm curious if you think that this might, re, you know, uh, change uh, President Biden's calculus about how he feels about the Iran deal, Or maybe it won't. But I I was just curious about your thoughts. Uh, Thank you very much.
1: Sure. Yeah. The outreach to to Venezuela is is interesting. I'm not sure it's bearing fruit yet. But, uh, you know, I think it's a good idea, frankly, because we've seen that the sanctions that the Trump administration put on Venezuela absolutely failed uh, to result in regime change, which was the, the whole purpose of them. So I think that 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 is good. I think that Biden values the JCPOA for its non nonproliferation uh, aspects, primarily uh, not so much because it would be nice to have Iranian oil, more Iranian oil on the market. But certainly it's a consideration. And I think it's one of the reasons that we've not seen an aggressive effort by the Biden administration to go after the sanctions busting that's already going on. Uh, it's not just China. There are middlemen in the United Arab Emirates that are facilitating this trade, you know, and basically we're, you know, we, there, I think a Treasury Department official went out and sort of gave a wrist slap to the UAE, but we're not really doing what we could to, to try to exert some pressure on them over this or to penalize them in any way over this. So if we don't get the JCPOA back, we might actually see the U.S. get a little more forceful. Um, in terms of trying to get others to, to abide by our secondary sanctions or not. You know, that that's that's a question. If we don't, frankly, it, it relieves the pressure on Iran to return to the deal because they're getting a lot of the benefits uh, anyway uh, without having to uh, roll back their nuclear program.
0: All right. Next up, we're going to go, I think, along the similar lines to Rafael uh, Struve, who is... Um, Uh, A great uh, fellow podcaster like myself hosts the State of the Venezuelan Podcast uh, and has an MA in Global Affairs from Rice University, but uh, Rafael, over to you.
2: Yeah, thank you so much, Piotr. And uh, Barbara, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Thankfully, Aaron already asked a Venezuela-related question, because as a Venezuelan myself, uh, my question has to do actually with the Iran-Venezuela relationship, which I'm sure has appeared to some degree under your radar. Um, In my podcast, this is something that I have uh, been focusing on because of the degree to which they have exerted both soft and military power inside of the country. Um, As you know, the, the Islamic Republic has gone out of their way to send fuel shipments to Venezuela in order to make up for the lack of the ability for Venezuela to provide it or to produce it and provide it for its own people. But as you know, there's more to this alliance than fuel shipments. You have uh, supermarkets now that are in Caracas with well-known Iranian brands, stores that are subsidiaries of Madafil, which is the Iranian Ministry of Defense and the Armed Forces Logistics. Uh, You have Mahan Air now conducting direct flights from Tehran to Caracas. And if you account for also the potential sale of generational warships and weapons that have made it from Iran to Venezuela, um, a lot of this, of course, is happening several hours away by plane. And, of course, I'm speaking for in the capacity of an American. So it seems like there are some rumblings that have since dissipated when this these rumors started first circulating. But for the most part, this relationship seems to fly under the radar of foreign policy circles at large. So I'm wondering what your perception is of that Iran-Venezuela relationship, and to a greater degree, what Iran's presence is in Latin America at large? Thank you.
1: Well, thanks for that question. I'll, I'll, I'll admit right from the start that I'm not a huge <laughs> expert on on this relationship. I know it started when Hugo Chavez was, was still around, and uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, who was a similar sort of uh, fire-breathing populist, was the president of Iran, and there was an affinity there. Uh, a lot of views that they shared. Um, you know, I think there, when Iran saw Venezuela being subjected to sanctions, it uh, it felt a kinship with this country, an even greater kinship. And uh, there were also, I think, links that were established primarily through uh, Venezuelans who are of Lebanese Shia Muslim origin. Uh, and Hezbollah, as we know, has a big network Uh, The Lebanese Shia militant group has a big network in Latin America in the in the Lebanese diaspora uh, where it carries on, you know, all kinds of money laundering and drug trafficking and Lord knows what else. So I think Iran is sort of tapped into that network to some extent. And then, of course, if you're under sanctions, you're looking for, you know, whatever you, who can you sell to? Iran, by the way, sells a lot of small arms to Africa, something I discovered recently. I hadn't, you know, realized. They're looking for markets wherever they can find those markets. And I think they enjoy psychologically the idea of being in, in, the U.S. backyard since, since the United States has been in Iran's backyard uh, for a very long time and with tens of thousands of troops. So there's a little bit of tit for tat in there as well.
0: Great. Thank you very much for that question and a terrific response, Barbara. I think um, we're getting some curveballs, sorry I you, you're dealing with them very well. All right. I'd like to move over to Marvin, who I believe had an interesting question about technology.
3: Uh, thanks, Peter. Uh, hi, Barbara. I, I just wanted to know if you had any insight when it comes to inter- Internet and how it's influencing or how it's being used or how it could even could be used within um, the Iranian regime.
1: Well, I can recommend to you an excellent paper on the subject uh, on this very topic by uh, one of my colleagues at the Atlantic Council. Uh, her name is Holly Dogress. And she wrote an entire issue brief on social media in Iran that also looks at the internet. Uh, basically the Iranian government tries to control it, uh, doesn't succeed. I mean, Pyotr, you mentioned that there are a lot of Iranians on Clubhouse. That's because people have access to VPNs and that's how they, they get on Twitter and, and, and whatnot. And, uh, uh, Instagram, which is the most popular app, I believe, uh, and is used commercially in Iran. A lot of people have businesses, they're influencers, uh, just like we have in the West, um, uh, that are on Instagram and uh, make a lot of money off it. So it's it's a kind of uh, uh, delicate game that the Iranian government plays. It doesn't want to kill off the commerce, which people rely on, particularly with COVID and everything. But at the same time, it tries to desperately block uh, opposition views um doesn't I don't think it does a very good job I think everybody knows it um, the supreme leader is on facebook uh you know uh, the various presidential candidates were on Facebook a lot of Iranian officials are sorry on 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 Twitter and and use it quite heavily uh Mahmoud Ahmadinejad even tweets in english <laughs> um although his tweets are pretty weird so it's I don't think they'll ever be able to entirely uh eliminate uh, f- the freedom of Iranians to use the internet. They have tried to create what they call a halal internet, which is closed to the outside. Same thing the Russians have done. And I think they exchanged expertise on that. But so far, they've not been able to really seal it off. And there's legislation in parliament uh to uh, try to control the internet, which has been sitting there. I don't believe it's actually been been passed. Uh, we in the West try to help the Iranians with all sorts of tools, circumvention tools, so they can continue to uh, have access to uh, outside information.
0: Thank you very much for that. All right. And I think the last question um, before we wrap things up for this episode of The Global Gambit. I would like to go over to Babak, who's a filmmaker. He's got a question about the uh, Russian-Syrian relationship and Iran's potential replacement to that. So, uh, Babak over to you.
3: Thank you, Piotr, and thank you uh, for, for coming. Basically, over the la- oh, since the war on Ukraine, uh, there has been a lot of news that the IRGC forces are replacing and the Russians in Syria, and increasing their presence there. I was wondering what you know about that and what the ramifications of that is.
1: Well, that's fascinating. Actually, that's news to me, but it would make sense since uh, Russia is removing some of its people and also uh, has recruited Syrian mercenaries, uh, apparently, to to fight in Ukraine. Look, uh, this is a very important relationship for Iran, as I think you well know. Uh, It's a relationship that goes back nearly to the Iranian revolution. And uh, Iran hopes to profit at some point from all that it's poured into Syria by getting contracts for uh, reconstruction. It also wants to make sure that Syria stays firmly in Iran's camp and that it remains uh, the conduit for Iran to send... uh, uh, weapons and all manner of goods to Hezbollah in, in Lebanon. Uh, so that is that is interesting. Um, as I say, I will check into it now. And I thank you very much for bringing that to my attention. I can
0: tell you want I keep answering questions later on. Um, thank you. All right. I'd like to go to uh, Tia. I think she has a question on the sort of historical significance of the uh, Iranian revolution and its uh, context to now. But- uh, thank you, Pyotr, and thank you, Barbara, for being here, uh, being Iranian and from the Azerbaijan province. The subject matter is very close to my heart. And I have a question in relation to the 1979 revolution. Some believe if Shah had stayed in power, Middle East would have been in a far more peaceful position, situation now, in a very Sunni and Shia extremism worsening of Palestinian-Israeli conflict, Yemen situation, Iran-Iraq war, all were somehow resulted from Islamic re- revolution. How much truth do you think is to this? Thank you.
1: Wow, that's a really difficult question. You know, the Middle East has never been stable in my lifetime. <laughs> so, it, you know, if there hadn't been the Iranian revolution, I suppose there would have been something else. Um uh, I think you know it, it's certainly fair to say that there was a great deal of, of you know, the whole like, concept of political Islam has had many manifestations. Uh, we saw it in uh, Afghanistan. We saw it in Iran. We we saw it in in Egypt, where I lived for some years. Uh, certainly, the Muslim Brotherhood was the the granddaddy of all political Islam uh, movements in in the region. Um, so. It's very hard to say. I think that clearly the Islamic Republic has been a a very disruptive force uh, in many ways, but uh, so have so many other actors. I mean, did Saddam Hussein have to invade uh, uh, Iran? He thought it would be easy to take Huzestan province from Iran because of the chaos of the revolution and the hostage crisis when Iran was holding U.S. hostages. So how much was his fault? How much is it the fault of the United States in uh, invading Iraq in 2003? I mean, that's what really created the Shia Crescent and allowed Iran to extend its influence deeply into Iraq and through Syria uh, to, to Lebanon and to the Mediterranean. So um, I think there there are a lot of there have been a lot of bad actors in the region uh, over time. And um uh, Iran is certainly among them, but I would not say that it was alone uh, in its destabilizing activities.
0: Thank you very much for that great final question, that here And Barbara, thank you for taking on uh, a great multitude of different perspectives and questions, I think. Um, you know, for me, it, it, I think it comes back to the Sykes-Picor agreement of 1916, where we could arguably say a lot of these <laughs> modern issues and having one of those accents myself, it doesn't well, go down very well. But um, yes, um, uh, I think we'll just have to get you back on, uh, hopefully. In the near <laughs> um, but I, I wanted to thank you very much for your time and also ask, is there anything you'd like to leave the audience with, any takeaways, anything people, you know, we can find you in terms of your content, your... Uh, sure, sure. Uh,
1: I, I tweet at barbara slaven one and we have an excellent blog called Iran Source at the Atlantic Council. Uh, you can also look at the future of iran initiative at the atlantic council if you're interested in more content on on all of these issues and uh i want to uh, thank your audience i think it's the best one of the best uh, educated and most interesting ones that i have talked to in a long time so uh bravo to you and uh by the way i am of russian origin also so we have that in common and uh you know, I just hope this tragedy in Ukraine uh, ends very quickly for everyone. Thank you very much,
0: Barbara. It's been a pleasure. And yes, I uh, I hope it, it does too. My grandparents are, unfortunately, uh, being affected by the sanctions as we speak. And uh, uh, I mean, some of that heritage I found out this morning, ironically, is that my grandmother, who lives in Siberia, actually hails from the Donbass region. She's a Don Cossack. So oh. yeah, it's a, a bit of a bizarre sort of paradigm, really. Um, um, love to have you back on as soon as we can um, but that's it everybody uh, that was uh, the latest episode of the Global Gambit, um, next up we've got some um, uh, some more size Foreign Policy Institute fellows coming on including Dan Markey who will be going into the Indian Russian relationship in its context of Ukraine and we'll also be hopefully hearing from um, another member of the Council on Foreign Relations in the next two bit of time, but that's been it for me, take care you were listening to The Global Gambit. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, subscribe and leave us a review. We would especially appreciate it if you left a comment on why you valued this episode and what you took away from it. Doing so helps us to be discovered by new listeners who would really enjoy our content. Want to support us further? Do so by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Gambit where you can get additional perks and even be featured in upcoming episodes. We actively invite you to follow and engage with us on social media at The Global Gambit. Got any feedback or suggestions, such as potential guests, get in touch at theglobalgambit at gmail.com. Lastly, don't be shy. Download the Clubhouse app, listen in in real time, and even participate with questions or comments to the guests and host Piotr. But until next time... This is The Global Gambit.